0: Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I have someone... How long have we known each other,
1: Dylan? Several years.
0: Several years. We'll just go with several years. Uh, <laughs> it's I different do, knowing each other in L.A. It, it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's different knowing That's each other on, on, on the internet, too. Uh-huh. And um, well, But we met when you were at CNN. Yeah. I think I was at the New York Times. Uh, and you were covering media. Politics, this, that, and the other, and now you are at MSNBC. You have an incredible newsletter, thank you, uh, that I read every single morning. Uh, and we're going to talk about the stuff that you talk about on your newsletter, which I'm very excited about. So, one of the things that I enjoy about your coverage is that you're you're the one that's like, eh, maybe we should think about this in a little different way. And that happened recently with Bloomberg. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah, you know. There, I mean, you, you're aware of this as I am. There is a immense revulsion to billionaires generally. But politically speaking, any time a billionaire gets into the race, gets into the Democratic Party, it seems to fly in the face of all logic about where the party is going, about the enthusiasm that at least up until recently was surrounding Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders. There's this notion that if you have made a ton of money— uh, you somehow are are just trying to buy the election and it's a fool's errand uh, and, and you might as well just get out of the way. And what I think, I, look, in retrospect, there's a conversation to be had about whether or not that's what Howard Schultz was doing. There's even a conversation to be had about whether or not that's what Tom Steyer is doing. When you talk about Michael Bloomberg you're not talking about a guy who's coming out of left field and trying to insert himself into the political process. You are talking about a guy who served three terms as mayor of New York City, and who has dedicated a vast amount of his wealth toward pushing for this very same progressive causes that Warren and Sanders and others care about. So look, I'm not I'm not that doesn't necessarily mean he has a snowball's chance in hell of winning. Maybe he does. It just seems weird to me to sort of lump the guy in with, uh, with with billionaires and with this demonization of billionaires as though the guy isn't a real political animal, which I think he is.
0: Well, yeah, I think that the the part that I think a lot of people bring up is that, you know, as you said, like AOC was like just another billionaire. And, and of course, everyone is, um, is saying the same thing on Twitter. And, you know, everyone has an opinion on Twitter. We <laughs> Do you all know, know how
1: that. great it would be If every billionaire was like Mike Bloomberg, if you're a Democrat, you should be praying that every billionaire was like Mike Bloomberg.
0: No, it's true. And, you know, he's taken on gun issues. He's taken on, uh, you know, he's had his issues. What politician hasn't. But I I think you're completely right. And I think that the problem is it's like there's this now carte blanche thing that like all of these rich people are bad. I think a lot of them are, quite Mm -hmm. frankly. Um, uh, You know, you could go through all 607 billionaires. Is it 607, I think it is now? Um, in the United States, yeah, there's 2,000-something in the world, and it's over 600 in the U.S., and I would probably say if 600 of them are probably jerks, <laughs> but there are seven good ones out there, maybe. Um, so here's the thing. The question I have is I actually, when you look at the candidates on the stage that are, you know, Kamal Harris dropped out this week. Um, it won't be long before we lose a couple more. Do you think that Bloomberg does have a snowball's chance in hell? You know, given the fact that people want someone who's a little more centrist, it seems that's what the case is, uh, and someone who does have experience, which he does have, do you think that he's he has a snowball chance, or do you think that the billionaire uh, thing that, that everyone says is is that's it, it's done?
1: I don't think the billionaire thing is is what will sink him. I think... If you look at look anecdotally, uh, I believe that there is a greater hunger for moderation and centrism uh, than the current debate taking place on cable news would suggest. I I think really with politics it comes down so much to charisma. I really do. I mean, I'm really a firm believer that this is like this that the the whole primary and general election contest the policies matter and the policies sort of shape the nation's larger understanding of who these candidates are i think the biggest thing standing in bloomberg's way is his ability to to get beyond being boring i don't think you know i think his campaign advisors have sort of tried to make the case that boring is what america needs right now i think he has to find a way to be exciting i think he has to find a way to get memed i think he has to find a way to go viral and with a guy like bloomberg who is sort of not that kind of political figure. That is what I worry about more than anything else. Again, you go back to some of these causes he's fought for. And he had, look, he's got major issues. The stop and frisk policy in New York was a major issue. But by and large, he's pushing for a lot of causes that progressives care about. So I think it's more his ability to sell that in the sort of media environment that we live in today and to become a compelling figure, um, you know, in, in the culture, in pop culture.
0: What I think is so fascinating is when you look at um, at what – at the strategy that he has taken already from the beginning, it's like – it's pretty fucking smart, honestly. You know, It's like I'm going to let these folks thrash it out for a year plus, uh, and then I'm going to come in in the way that I'm going to come in, and I'm going to – I'm going to take a completely different approach. It's a financial approach for sure. There's no question about that. But it is also – it could prove to be an incredibly intelligent one uh, that allows, you know, I think you, know, you just mentioned the media world. We live in this time where the news, the attention span of the news is, I mean, I remember when I first started working in this industry, you know, something could land on the front page of the New York times or, you know, be a breaking news thing on CNN or whatever. And it would be, it would be actually part of the story for a week or so, sometimes longer. And now it's, it's gone from weeks to days to to mere hours, sometimes minutes. You know, it's uh,
1: oh, entire news cycles can happen in less than an hour.
0: But I think those news cycles spread to candidates too, to our attention for candidates and the ones that we're excited by. I mean, you saw it happen with Beto, you saw it happen with Warren, you saw it happen with Buttigieg. You, you know, and I think. Bloomberg probably should have waited another few weeks, maybe, I don't know. But it seems like he is aware of that, and that that actually could play to his advantage.
1: I, I think that's totally true. And I also think, you know, biding your time and, and seeing how things shake out with the field is not a bad idea, especially with this cycle. If you look back at, at previous democratic cycles, when Obama ran in 2008, there was look it was a wide field of Democrats. But over time there was a great deal of enthusiasm about him and also about Hillary Clinton's campaign. When you look at, you know, Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, there were two warring camps, but the enthusiasm was very real. You know, I've since moved away from from the East Coast. We live in Los Angeles. I've got a little bit of distance on these things. I don't follow politics on the day-in, day-out the way I used to, but I think that's also healthy in terms of providing some perspective. I look at this field— And aside from Elizabeth Warren up until recently, I don't see a huge amount of enthusiasm around any of these candidates. Most of the time, if you look at these candidates, people are talking about their problems. Is Joe Biden too old? Is he too out of touch? Uh, Are Elizabeth Warren's policies actually feasible? Are they actually real? Uh, You know, does Buttigieg have a problem insofar as he can't win any support among the African American vote? If you're Mike Bloomberg and you're sitting back there and you're looking at your own experience, your own wealth, and the lack of enthusiasm surrounding these Democratic candidates, why wouldn't you get in and at least, you know, make, make a run for it? He certainly can afford to.
0: Yeah, it's uh, $4 billion is like if you lost a quarter between the couch cushions right now. Uh, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a big deal to him. <laughs>
1: That's the thing is though, if, if I could pay a quarter to get into this race, I wouldn't do it. Oh, I
0: wouldn't. If you offered me four billion dollars, I wouldn't do it. It just—I I had uh, Marion Williamson on, and uh, she came to the house to, to to do an interview, and it was a Sunday, and she was exhausted. And I was like, "Where are you off to next?" And she's like, "I don't even know. I think I'm going here and there." And I was like, "Where are you living now?" And she said, "This was all off off audio," and yeah. she said, um, "Out of a suitcase." And I just I, it's it just looks and imagine if you're imagine Warren who's been doing it for a year plus now. Uh, I just it does not seem like a fun thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Kudos to the people that 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 do, but not not for me. Yeah. All right. So one question I have is: So you've been covering media for for what a decade now or more? Um, not to age you. Thanks for that. <laughs> but the thing in that, my head, I'm still like 22. The, um, yeah, the, almost a decade. The thing that's so fascinating. Is how much it has changed in just a ten-year
1: period. Totally,
0: it, it is. It has become more opinionated. It's become more visceral. It's become uh, more dividing. Uh, and I look at these at the current media climate, and it is. I I work in it, and it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Like, right. uh, do you think that this can ever be like? turned around and become, you know, less chaotic and, and less dividing than it is today? Or do you think that the the genie's out of the bottle and you, that's you Are you
1: talking in terms of the political everything, dialogue everything the, is the a business nature of the media? All of it.
0: Is, I think it's like, you've got, you know, I mean, I was just reading today about uh, uh, Pirro from Fox News is going on, is doing like stump speeches, you know, it's like, that's not news, that's, some, that's someone giving stump speeches at a Republican convention. Like, right. you know, it's like we, uh, the divide between all of these media outlets is a reflection of the divide between this country. And, and I, I do put a lot of blame on the media for the world that we live in today. I think, let's take Trump for example, and I'm about to, I'm about to be the biggest fucking hypocrite <laughs> imaginable. <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. I was I was driving to a meeting and I was thinking, like, imagine if, like, your neighbor, if all you talked about for four years was your neighbor because he didn't cut his grass or whatever happened, right? At some point, your your spouse would be like, just fucking let it go, man. Like, it's right. like, stop thinking. This guy, like, crawled inside your head and is renting out space for free and constantly. And And I think, like, I look at the way Trump acts. So... And he, we, we give him attention for the things he wants attention for, and I, it boggles my mind yes. that we ha- that that the industry has not learned that.
1: Well, yeah, and it's hard because look, that Trump as a phenomenon and certainly as a president is a incredibly significant historical event, right? I mean, it can't that that can't be ignored, but at the same time. You know, for the news industry, especially when you start talking about cable news, it represented a lifeline of sorts. I mean, if you think about the way that CNN and, and somewhat less so, but but my network now, MSNBC, goes just wall to wall on Trump all the time. That that is simultaneously a, a political calculation about the significance of, of what's happening in the world right now, but it's also just a calculation about what people will watch, which is if you turn away from Trump or the intrigue of, say, the impeachment hearings or whatever, and you start doing something that has, you know, let's call it a foreign policy story or something else, the ratings, you can watch the minute by minute ratings and the ratings just start to nosedive. And so there's this sort of bubble that's taking place for, for the media industry right now because of Trump that is keeping all these you know, keeping these networks and, and and newspapers sort of afloat and even growing in some cases. And the problem with that is that we focus on all of these, you know, going back to one-hour news cycles, one-day news cycles, with all of this stuff that just fundamentally does not, oftentimes doesn't matter. I mean, you could leave the news cycle. You could turn off your television. You could stop reading political news. You could go away and you could come back. And f- the fundamental dynamics wouldn't have changed. There would have been a lot of palace intrigue. There would have been a lot of sort of, you know, Twitter lighting its hair on fire over the latest thing that, that uh, President Trump did. But at the end of the day, the fundamental dynamics haven't changed. I mean, it's one of the reasons I used to, you know, you, you were mentioning I've been covering media for almost a decade. I used to cover media and politics. That's not really interesting anymore. Media and politics is just the same story day in and day out. Oh, my God, can you believe the president did this? Oh, my God, this won't stand. Oh, my God, this goes against our values as if as if it mattered and by the way you know Piero or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Chris Cuomo on CNN I mean the amount the audience of people that is actually watching that on any given day is infinitesimal compared to the amount of audience that's engaging with new and more significant media platforms like Facebook Twitter YouTube TikTok Snapchat any no, you're given minute of completely right
0: week. yeah you completely. i mean uh, i think it, the, it's like a billion views a day on youtube compared to 2 million people to watch tucker carlson yeah. rant and rave about but, whatever misogynistic racist thing he's thinking about and, that and weekend. there's this
1: weird uh, there's this weird obsession with this sort of palace intrigue and this and and, and this sort of outrage cycle and, and just fundamentally, I think the vast majority of Americans aren't paying attention. Certainly more people will watch cable news because there's a storyline there that they can follow along with than maybe otherwise would have if you just jumped around from you know X story to Y story to Z story. But at the end of the day, the amount of people that cable news is fighting over is so small. I mean, the combined audience for Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, on, on your average night, is less than the population of the five boroughs of new york wow there's a country with four time zones that we're talking. you know what I mean so it's just uh, it baffles me do you think that um, that as you look
0: forward over you know the next few years, do you think that the, we get, Trump comes and goes, God, please let it happen next year, but let's just say worst case scenario it's another five years, whatever it is at some point he leaves right mm-hmm. does the do you think the news, like let's just say a Bloomberg wins, does the news cycle change for that president and that, t- or is it, or is this the new world that we live in? And they will be, they will find ways for palace intrigue in a new, uh, a new story.
1: There will always be room for palace intrigue because I think people fundamentally gravitate towards stories. I don't think you can hand people, you know. Policy, segments on policy or segments on, on sort of more significant big-picture stuff. I think stories and drama matter. I think what I think about more is that people aren't going to be watching this on television. I mean, think you know, you don't you don't get the news through television. You get the news through your phone, you know, and so it just— Unless you're my mother-in-law. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but, well, and that, by the way, that's the other thing about cable news. I mean, the audience is—the average age of the audience for all three of these networks, I mean— somewhere in the late 50s 60s if you're fox news i think it's you know probably 104 <laughs> but um, it's just it's not it's not the future and and so yes but, there will be palace intrigue yes there will be stories, but, af- but we, you won't be getting this but it affects cable. it affect you know, look
0: you know yes the five boroughs of new york are the ones that are watching this you know watching the cable news cycle and everything but
1: it affects more. It's
0: affected everything. I remember there was a point in time at the, at the New York Times when uh, th- an editor said to me, um, watch, you know, n- the Nightline tomorrow night after we publish the story in the morning. That'll be the, you know, you can you could literally track a front page New York Times story. To, to the to, nightly news. To the nightly news. For sure. And now
1: it's almost like it's kind of the other way around. It's like... Yes, it's, we, are, we are too often we are writing on cable. But that's the choice of the president. Because the president cares about cable and he cares about his Twitter feed. And so, well, I don't know if he... He cares about what he tweets and he cares about cable news. And so, again, it's this sort of strange lifeline. <laughs> it's like this last gasp uh, uh, for that for that part of media.
0: What do you think media looks like in this there is a clear divide. It's in many respects, it's almost like, you know, football teams. Like, oh, I support this team and you support that team. I'm terrible mm-hmm. at sports, so I won't actually name any. Cuz I'll probably name a basketball team. Uh, <laughs> you know there's so many good sports metaphors
1: in news. Right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's uh, a real pa- shame, you I've don't. I've heard
0: about this. Uh, <laughs> uh somebody recently said, are you, "Are you going to the are you watching the the uh LA game?" and I was like, W- which, w- which one <laughs> what who is it he, they actually said the team name um i was like is that baseball uh, but but the but there it used to be like okay well i i like this sports team you like that sports team we can disagree about which one is better and that yeah. has happened to media like i watch fox you watch msnbc or cnn or whatever and it i truly do believe that not just cable but like newspapers the new york post versus the daily news the new york times versus the journal like that it has become – that you've seen this divide that has happened and that it has become almost like you are represented by the thing that you read or watch. I have a friend who worked for the FBI who said that um, if you brought a copy of the New York Times – right when Trump won. Yeah. If you'd have brought a copy of the New York Times into the office, somebody would have punched you in the face. Like, and it, it, it has become like this representation. So
1: I don't think we're – I don't think we are going to – there is this – especially among older generations, there is this sense of nostalgia for the time when we had three networks, and everyone paid attention to the nightly news, and we had three newspapers, and we had this sense that, you know, the famous quote, um, you know, we we have, we, 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 what is it, you can, you're entitled, right, you're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And that fundamentally, the nation agreed on a common set of facts, given any sort of story, and then you use those facts to have a larger debate. And people feel like this time we're living in where what you're talking about, where everything is weaponized, opinionated, contentious, that this feels like an aberration to what used to have been. I would argue that what was from, say, 1950 to, you know, the early 90s. That that was actually the aberration. Well, if you look at the history, in. if you look at the history of news going back to the 1850s, right, or the 19 early 1900s, news has often been hyper opinionated. People took stances. There were newspapers that represented political parties. I mean, I mean, there were, newspapers oftentimes represented a, a constituency or a a group of people and their views, and they tried to basically advocate for those views. And the division between, this holy division between the news side and the opinion side did not exist in the way that we fundamentally understood it existing, you know, I would say when you and I were were kids. So I think, in many ways, this sort of feels like a return to the way that things used to be. So there was what, this aberration when
0: there was a divide between opinion and news? Yeah, it was was an
1: aberration to say... That news was was the authority, and that it spoke from this sort of you know voice of God, middle of the middle of the political spectrum. Everything that came out of Edward R. Murrow's mouth could be trusted. I think that was the aberration. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: Hi, it's Radika Jones, editor in chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines. So when I, I remember when I was at the Times, and I, I was I wasn't a reporter; yet, I was an art director, and I, I was in a business meeting, and there was a, a story we were talking about in our news meeting, and I forget what it was. It was something an oil story or something like that, and we came out of the news meeting, and there was a guy who had worked at the Times for four decades. And I said to him, well, "What do you think about that story?" Because it was like a big, big story mm-hmm. at the time. And he was like, "I don't have an opinion on it." And I was like, "Oh, I know. Come on, yeah. You, of course, I, I know yeah. that's the like the the party line. But like, what do you really think?" And I, I kept pushing him, and eventually, he looked at me and he said, "Nick, I do not have an opinion. I'm a journalist." And I remember being kind of perplexed by that. And it's admirable that he, you know, he didn't have an opinion, did have an opinion, but we as human beings have opinions, right? Yeah, and. You can't cover Trump and the immigration policy and not have and, and seeing see kids being torn from their mothers and not have an opinion and so on. Do you think that we the next generation of journalists coming up and the news cycle and so on will embrace their opinions and their viewpoints, or will they try to maintain that somewhat BS viewpoint that they don't have an opinion?
1: I. I, I I think you're going to get more people embracing their viewpoints. You're going to get more people embracing their biases and saying this is who who we are. this is what we stand for. There's no reason to fake it. There is no view from nowhere. Personally, I don't begrudge the view from nowhere. I don't begrudge the people who try to be Switzerland or the people who um, you know, doctors without borders, right? Like like you 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 basically you don't ask. Is this guy an Israeli or Palestinian? You just jump in and you provide health care. And I do think at a certain point, one thing you're talking that that we're really talking about is that there is a crisis of authority taking place Correct. in media. It's yes. taking place across institutions in this country and I think globally, but it's really taking place in, in the media. And there's this sort of sense of we don't know who to trust, we don't know who, who is entirely credible. It's it's all institutions. It's not just media. Yeah, and I don't. I don't. I would not look. I think not all people have to do the same thing in media. Some people have the sense that journalism. There's a line that journalism should um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and that seems to me to be highly weaponized. So, so anyone who's comfortable deserves to be afflicted, and our whole our whole point is going to be to help out people who are afflicted or. If you want to do that, fine. But I also think there's room for journalism that says, look, we are living in fascinating times. I want to provide a record of, to the best of my ability, my understanding of what is taking place here. And I want to be dispassionate enough that I don't let my biases cloud the narrative. So I think the ideal outcome in that scenario is acknowledge your biases to yourself, but you—you you, there is a way at times to sort of leave that to the side, like your, your colleague who had worked for the Times at 40 years and, and recognize that in your job, in order to do your job the way you want to do it, you actually have to set some of those biases aside.
0: Or at the same time I do think that, you know, there are, my belief has changed over the years and I do think that there are certain issues where you should have an opinion. Sure. But, you know, that, you know, if you and I were covering, you know, Hitler in, you know, a Nazi Germany,
1: I would hope that we would be like, wait a second. Right. This is this is pretty bad. Like. But that's but, but, of course. But that's just a question about priorities. And I think it's possible to maintain multiple priorities in your head at the same time. And then at some point you just have to organize them. Right. I I wish I could work 24 hours a day so I could get more done. I don't feel like there's enough time in a day. When I get home at 6 o'clock, I spend an hour with my kid because my kid takes precedence over my work. So no matter what's going on with work, my kid owns 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., no matter what's happening. There is a point at which the news becomes so—something that's happening uh, in politics and in society becomes so— offensive or problematic or dangerous or become such a threat to your sense of values or your own sense of the fate of the Republic or the fate of humanity that you just have to prioritize that over your commitment to your to, to, you know, sort of nonpartisan approach to the news. But I don't think that means you have to get rid of that yeah, no, nonpartisan approach approach, and just have a bias with everything you write.
0: Um, all right, I want to switch gears for a minute. You have been writing a lot about what's going on in the tech world recently. Yeah. Uh, and you've also been writing a lot about what's going on in Hollywood recently. So I want to, I'm going to do the tech thing first because I have a lot of questions about both. Uh, it seems like the... The media shift to tech um, is, well, it's not, doesn't seem like, it's having massive impacts on the growing pains of these companies and so on. And you actually, you spend a lot of time not just talking to the people that run them, but talking to people that work for them and so on. What's your sense of, you know, at places like Apple and Facebook uh, and, and Google and so on, it's the first time I've ever seen the employees be upset by the actions of their bosses. Do you think that has an impact? Like, what is the things, what are you hearing like when you talk to people, you know, on the street about these things?
1: Sure, well, the first, I mean, the first thing that, that context is, what happened is that for a long time, tech was a business story, Yes. right? And then it became a political story, really after 2016 with everything that happened with Facebook and a sort of, the I think the public waking up to what was happening with our data. As soon as it became a political story, the entire thrust of how the tech world was covered changed. And I think that there are employees at all of the companies you mentioned that sort of woke up and understood that they could have a role in sort of either shifting the tone of that discussion or even shifting the priorities of the companies that they worked for. If you talk to the leaders of these companies, I think their first sense is that, and and this is often the case when you get a group of employees, uh, activist employees in any company, it doesn't, it's not just tech. I think, you know, the leadership's first sense is this is a very, very small swath of the overall organization and the vast amount of people who go to work at Facebook or Google or Apple are programmers or developers who are just really excited to be innovating. But at a certain point, the amount of press coverage, you can't block that out. And I think at a certain point it began you begin to ask questions about what is our company doing. I think for a lot of folks at, at Google and Amazon, the question of Pentagon contracts and defense contracts and the way that AI technology is being used for things like that. I think that I think that becomes a real thing. I think it's the biggest problem for Google. I think a walkout.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, well, the, here's the question though. So there's this Alphabet shakeup this week. Larry yeah. Page finally left, um, even though he really left a couple of years ago, uh, and and went AWOL. And you know Sergey Brin's you know hanging off the side of a mountain or skydiving or whatever it is he's doing. <laughs> and and Sundar, uh, who has been running the company under his watch, and I think it would have happened under anyone's watch, because I think the, the the problems were there a long time ago. They just came to fruition while he was there. There's been a lot of problems. Yeah. And I guess the question I have is does he give a shit that his employees give a shit? Or for him, is it I'm just I'm you know, I'm at war with Facebook right now and and I've you know if I lose a few troops along the way, so be it
1: Look, I think he care, he certainly cares insofar as it's a PR issue for the company, right? I mean, it doesn't look good to have these employee walkouts. You, that's a problem that you need to contain. Does he care at a sort of at the personal level of does he say, okay, what are these people really asking for, and how do we address their problems? Yeah, I think he does up to a point. I also don't think he wants to set a culture where every time a group of employees get upset about something, they all of a sudden dictate the whims of of one of the most powerful and influential companies in the world, right? And so I, I think that my guess is his feelings about the activist employees probably depend on the case they're trying to make on an ad hoc basis. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You sometimes have the,
0: when I read your newsletter, you you sometimes have the, the complete opposite uh, viewpoint than I, than I do, or than I, uh, that I would expect, um, and not expecting anything in particular, just like, you know, when I look at a topic, you've, I've seen you be defensive for Facebook and, and other outlets. Is it? Is it that you're, do you want people to see another side of it, or do you genuinely think, like, the, the Zuckerbergs and the Sheryl Sandbergs and those people aren't as bad as we all think they are?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think they're as bad as we all think they are. Because, but that's just, I, I don't think the Beatles are as good as they get credit for. I just, think, <laughs> I just think we've beat up on Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg
0: so much. But they run a company that does a lot of
1: bad stuff that they try not to fix. Not, they don't try not to fix, they so, ignore so here's, yeah, so there are certainly cases in which that's the case, and that that is why they're in the sort of morass that they're in right now from from a PR perspective. I think that the tone of the coverage, the sort of tech clash coverage, which has hit Facebook the hardest, it's hit other companies, but really Facebook the hardest, has snowballed to this point where sometimes I think that the general, the, the foundation for the stories they get written Is always assuming that Facebook is going to do the worst, assuming that Facebook is not paying attention to the problem, assuming that Mark Zuckerberg doesn't care. And it's not that I necessarily sympathize with him or think that he's you know grossly misunderstood and is in need of is in need of greater understanding or or in need of some sort of defense. I just we were talking about how tech has become political. Part of what that does is it creates this dynamic where you have a press that is antagonistic toward Facebook. And I don't necessarily trust that people on Twitter or reporters who are doing the best possible work they can to figure out what's going on inside of Facebook know 10% or 20% of what's actually going on inside Facebook. So my thing is not... Oh my god, the press is wrong and Mark Zuckerberg is right. Of course not. He has made myriad mistakes and he has done so many things wrong. But he it's a lot of the issues that that you know, blue check Twitter seems to think are just really simple. Blue check Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> like like oh, political ads, just stop running political ads, right? And Mark Zuckerberg c- comes out with a statement and everyone thinks you know, oh, he's just covering up or he's not being straight with the American people. No, these things are hard. They're not easy. And by the way, point of fact, Jack Dorsey came out and just said, oh, we're going to ban all political ads. And then a few weeks later, when he actually implemented the policy, it became clear, even to the likes of Elizabeth Warren, that that didn't necessarily benefit the people who thought that they were going to be benefited by those ads, that in some cases, that it actually hurt progressive causes to ban ads on Twitter. And so I guess what I'm saying is not, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's right and the press is wrong. I'm just saying slow down and try to unpack and understand these issues and recognize that if you get too swept up in this tech lash, anti-Facebook, anti-Google mentality, you you lose sight of how complex and nuanced these issues can be.
0: Look, I totally, I I 1,000% agree with you. I think that it's, It's the reason I don't work for a startup or run a startup, or the reason I didn't found Facebook is because if it were me, I'd be like, "Holy shit, this is pretty fucked up that people are dying as a result of this thing that I built. Let me bring the stock down to a dollar if I have to to fix this problem." You know, and and I, I I I just genuinely cannot empathize, sympathize, understand a company or people that. Don't do that, and look that's that it probably means I'm the worst capitalist alive but but I do think that I do think like if I was like right if I was doing a podcast every week and people were dying as a result of it, right uh I would probably stop doing the podcast or you know or do a different podcast or whatever it was and i and and I think that it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense to me that you're seeing this this platform that is having such a negative impact on society uh, and at large, like from Myanmar to, to, to politics in America, to everything and not be, and, and for you to be like, Hey, you know, it is what it is. Like perfect example is, um, Sasha Baron Cohen had this mm-hmm. incredible article yeah, I saw that. Uh, last week, an op-ed and he also, uh, a an amazing, amazing speech, but his op-ed was completely right on. He said, if under the, uh, the rules that Mark Zuckerberg put in place today if it exists if facebook existed in the 1930s adolf hitler would be able to advertise
1: on there and say we should get rid of all the jews right. and so so here's here's to me what it feels like is is the fundamental point that you're making correct me if i'm wrong there is this profound technological change that has happened through social media and 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 because of facebook and it has done I mean, you can't put the genie back in the bottle in terms of of, of what has changed. Two point seven billion people are now using this service in some way, shape, or form. There is a lot that it has done which is neither good nor bad, just sort of is, right? I mean there's been this This communication, like a the communication is is crazy. The decentralization of, of power to a degree, insofar as like anyone now with a computer can, can do something that has the potential to go viral, or has the potential to be shared among large groups of people, the ability to organize, the whole way that we communicate has been fundamentally changed. And so it seems to me like the point that you're making is, okay, if you have these side effects, or even let's call them features of the program, and that are detrimental to society, does that then mean that you should shut the whole thing down and let another social media company like TikTok come along and let everything play out Mm -hmm. there? Or should you do what Facebook has done, which has thrown tens of thousands of people at the problem, to try and fix it? And I guess my, my theory is that I don't understand... I don't necessarily understand how just shutting down Facebook. I'm not saying shut it down. I'm my,
0: here's my analogy: cars when they first came out, there were no seatbelts, mm-hmm. there was no ABS brakes, there were no speed limits. I mean, granted, they didn't go very fast, but over time, we have we have implemented. Laws that have sa- that save lives. Still, thirty four thousand people die every year in car crashes, ninety five percent of which are a result of human error. Right, which you could probably attribute the same statistics to shit that goes wrong on social media. However, yes. we have implemented rules and regulations and. Uh, to try to avoid... That. I think if we didn't have seatbelts and speed limits and airbags and, dr- and you had to have a driver's license and all these okay, things... agree with all of
1: this. But... Who who mandated that there needed to be seatbelts in cars? The government. Thank you.
0: Well, that's so... But are you... So are you for regulation or... Yes. Oh, for great. Sure. great. Wonderful. For sure. Great. For sure. But do you regulation. think that Trump... Trump. <laughs> do you think that Zuck and, and, and Cheryl and Sundar and all those guys are too?
1: Yeah, I think they're for a certain kind of regulation because without... Look, I don't think they're as for regulation as they claim. You know, Mark Zuckerberg goes out and says, please regulate us. Well, he I don't... says that because because if if you regulate them in a specific way,
0: it kills competition.
1: Yeah, I think there are ways that regulation could certainly benefit Facebook for sure. I think that they actually legitimately want some form of regulation, the regulation they want, hence all their lobbyists, but they want some form of regulation that actually provides some rules of the road So they don't have to keep paying fines and keep running into trouble, and they actually know, tell us what we are allowed to do and tell us what we are not allowed to do. And I think to go to your car metaphor, the thing that frustrates me about the press coverage is it's like, you need to, you know, Facebook is doing X, Y, and Z wrong, and there need to be rules in place to make sure that these things don't happen. And all of that attention is getting put on silicon valley and it's not getting put on washington and look the problem is washington is relatively feckless it's not really great at figuring out even what's going on and by the way washington is still trying to regulate things that were happening in 2015 and 2016 by the time they actually get around to doing anything look the hearings with zuck were a perfect example of
0: like you know I lost my password for my Facebook account. Can you tell me how to reset it? Like, you know, <laughs> How do you turn this thing off? says senator who's been there for for 50 years. No, I I think you're completely right. I mean, I think this is goes back to the beginning of this conversation is that, you know, I think that that you are we are in a time period where um where every everything has moved at breakneck speeds I, I've yes. said this this many times before, but there's there's research that says in the next eighty years we will have the same amount of technological change that happened in the last twenty thousand right the amount of technological change that's happened in the last ten years has it, it, out, uh, eclipses the last thousand and right. and I think that um that all happens and government is like this like, opioid-addicted turtle, like, crawling across the floor, like, unsure where it's going. And in a
1: way, by the way, that might be—if you just think about the organism that is humanity, that might be—there might be something healthy in the public directing its anger towards Silicon Valley, because I think there's a realization that governments are totally ill-equipped and inept— Mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of any change. And the future is really the important thing because, again, government is always going to be playing catch-up and always trying to regulate the past. And I think there is this sense that, you know, if anyone can do anything about this, it is the people who are actually running these companies. But what? look, I'm not defending Mark Zuckerberg or Sundar Prachai or anything, but these guys have internalized this problem— the problems, the myriad problems that they have from, you know, data collection to election interference, privacy, security, and they have gone out and said, regulate us. They want a certain kind of regulation, but until government steps up, nothing is going to change. And that's only going to change if the president changes. And that's only going to because change it's if Because it doesn't serve right.
0: any benefit for Trump, for this all to be fixed. Yeah, that's absolutely right.
1: You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton.
0: All right, so switching gears one yeah. more time. This time to something that I am fascinated by, which you cover a lot, which is of course Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So, what is going on? I don't. I don't Such understand. Such a great question. I don't understand like what the goal is here. What's happening? You've got the merger of Disney and Fox. You've got. The you know the insane graphs where you see the number of TV shows being made every year now, where it's gone from a a few dozen years and years ago to hundreds now. Um, Most of the stuff on you want to call it television, we'll call it. Should we call it television? Yeah, can call it television. Is fucking garbage. Yes. Right. I I, literally there are so many nights I go and lay down and I pull up the TV and I go through every single app and I'm like, there's nothing to watch. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> and yet and yet there's billions of dollars being poured out it. You. you've got, you know, Warner Media and this and that and the other. Like, what what the hell is happening? Well so this usually gets
1: And what's the fi- goal? Yeah, I mean it usually gets filed under the the streaming wars, right? Yeah. And in a sense the streaming wars are real because this um this proliferation of content means that these companies are fighting over the best talent, the best stories, the best intellectual property. But a lot of these companies are actually not at war with one another because they actually have different goals. So in when you ask the question what's happening, what's happening for Netflix isn't necessarily the same thing as what's happening for Amazon, isn't necessarily what the same thing as what's happening for Disney or Comcast or whatever. Um, but what unites all of those things is there is this recognition that in order to keep consumers in, in, inside of their worlds, right. In order to keep consumers inside the world of Amazon and Amazon prime and everything that that offers, or in order to keep consumers inside the larger world of Disney and going to theme parks and things like that, that you have to have creative content and you have to have enough creative content that people are willing to pay, $4.99 499 or 999 or 14.99 a month in order to get your service. And and so but is the goal like why is Apple
0: doing it and Google not?
1: Yeah, great question. So Google is I mean Google's fundamentally in the internet business, right? And so they've got YouTube and and in a way by the way, in a way they are because they have YouTube TV, which is like 54.99 a month. 54? 54.99 a month, but it gives you television. Got it. Right? It gives, oh, okay, you, you know what yeah, I mean? Yes, yes, yes. But in terms of the creative game, I think, you know, for Apple, I think what they understood is iPhone sales, which is the bulk of their business, are going down. I mean, they've sort of hit a threshold. And maybe if Apple can figure out a way to create a truly revolutionary new phone, then they can just get back to focusing on the phone business. But short of that, their their business is shifting towards services. Apple Music, Apple Card, Apple Pay, Apple Apple Arcade, which is games, which is a really big growth area for a lot of these companies. And so having a creative content piece of that, which basically says, sure, you could get your programming on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever, but you're only going to be able to get this great programming here is going to incentivize more people to either stay in the greater Apple universe and keep getting iPhones instead of Androids or to come over to the Apple universe and become iPhone subscribers. And I, I think I wrote this a few weeks ago. I could be totally wrong, but I think at some point Apple is going to move to an Amazon prime model where you pay one fee a year and you get access to everything that Apple has to offer, including upgrades to your iPhone. Hmm. Every time a new iPhone comes smart. out. smart, Yeah.
0: Um, and then you don't have to pay 49 for a, a, a case that costs them 12 <laughs> yeah, cents to that, make. That's
1: absolutely right. Um,
0: <laughs> Do you think that um, for Amazon and Netflix, which are kind of at the center of the streaming mm-hmm. wars, um, do you think there ha- do you think there's a winner in these games, like, or is it just that that all ships either sink or rise, or
1: not all ships? I think, uh, as John Stanky, the head of AT and T's Warner Media, said, I think f- he said about five or six companies probably get a seat at the table. And I th- and that's in terms of the big people who are trying to offer you a broad swath of content. There are going to be a lot of niche players that, you know, if you're really into yacht races or if you're really into dog shows, right, you can subscribe to that service. But at the high level, look, I think Disney is obviously a player because of the intellectual property they the have. IP's I mean, it's, it's crazy. And by the way, it's not just that they have a library they came out with their first show and it was an immediate hit. I mean, everyone is talking about Baby Yoda, right? From The Mandalorian. So Baby Yoda, if they could figure out a way to actually get it on shelves, would be like the Christmas toy, uh, you know, of the season. Um, they, they to me, are the safest, they're, they're actually the safest bet. And I say that as the father. Oh, I of completely t- agree. I completely, I'm the father of a two-year-old.
0: The thing that, I think the thing that, um, that you know, I remember I was at the Times in 2010, I thought 2009, and I cut my cable um, and I wrote a piece about it and explaining how I did it. And back then it was not easy. Like you had to have like an Apple computer hooked up to your television through like, you know, 17 cables and like a wireless mouse and like, you know, and you're using like an app called box and it wasn't even an app. It was just a browser. And I remember it was like on the most, it was the top of the most emailed list for, for, for weeks. Yeah. Because everyone wanted to do it. And I, and the problem was I kept getting all these emails. This is 10 years ago and the emails were, Hey, I did this, but I I can't get sports. Yeah, and that was that was always for years. That was always the thing, and of course, with Disney, you do
1: you get ESPN. You can get ESPN Plus if you bundle. You can get you can get Disney Plus for an incredibly cheap price, given all the content that you get, and then you can bundle it with Hulu and ESPN Plus. And now you're talking about sports. Now it's not all the sports, and we should talk about sports too, but. Oh, God, you're scaring me. No, it's actually because this is the the whole future of where the, stream, the so-called streaming wars are going. Sports is going to be a really important part of that because right now the sports rights are owned by the broadcast companies. But at a certain point, they're going to all come up for auction in 2022, 2023, and you're going to have... Silicon Valley players, tech players, phone companies moving in and trying to take a greater piece of that action.
0: But but the, the question I have is, why wouldn't the NFL or whatever, why wouldn't they be like Disney Plus and just have an app everywhere and be the ones that own all that stuff rather than have to go through another
1: platform? That's actually a great question. I would say probably because of money, just because if you license it, the more licensing deals you have, the more money you're going to make. So and so, if you if you do it yourself, you have to create this whole business around it, and then you have to advertise around it. And meanwhile, there are all these players out here who are going to pay you insane amounts of money. I mean, the amount of money that that media companies are spending on sports rights is mind boggling. And I've talked to executives at sports media companies who have said, "Yeah, these prices are too high, but we don't have a choice." What are they, like what are they spending on them? No, that- I have no. Idea. I mean, I'd have to look it up, but it's it's just it go it gets higher and higher and higher. Every single year,
0: when you look at all, why there's so much stuff out there and there's so little good stuff, yeah, what do you attribute that, attribute that to?
1: You know, there's a media executive here in Hollywood actually who told me once. There, there are different um, analogies. One of my favorite ones is if you if you look at the U.S. Open, right, or any tennis tournament, and you say, or a golf tournament, and you say, okay, we're going to invite hundred people to play you know who the seven or eight people are who are capable of actually winning the tournament. So then you say, next year, we're going to invite 200 people to play. But it's still the only seven or eight, maybe nine people now who are capable of actually winning the tournament. And so just because you create more content doesn't mean that there's more better content. The the One of the great stories to to sort of bring everything we're talking about together in terms of you know the rise of Silicon Valley and the changing nature of media generally is there's no real algorithm. There's no sort of in a technological innovation you can create to figure out how to put together a really great piece of creative content. I mean, you know this. You, you're you're a screenwriter now. Like there are you have to have the right screenplay. You have to have the right talent on screen. You have to have the right director. You have to have the the, the financing behind it things got to go right. If you're shooting a movie, you got to pray that maybe, you know, you're getting the right weather on us. I mean, there's a lot that goes into making creative content and there's no silver bullet towards sort of figuring out how that works and then just replicating it over and over again. Now you can do it up to a point. Bob Iger has done that at Disney. Every Disney story is practically the same story. How many Marvel movies exist now? 40 and people keep going to see them. But at a certain point, you, if you want to come up with the next great game of Thrones, there's no formula for doing that. And so, it's hard. But, it's really, but, really hard. Yes,
0: but uh, I totally 1,000% agree with you. And I will say that, that screenwriting and TV and film and all is, is, without question, the hardest form of storytelling there is. With, harder than books, magazines, anything. Um, uh, but when you look at, like you just said, you know, there's 40 Marvel movies and they're all the same. Like when you look at that, you have to. There's a statistically there back in the 80s, Hollywood execs were were trying anything like, you know, Mm -hmm. they were trying different forms of storytelling, different kinds of movies, different kinds of TV shows and so on. Now that happens so rarely, like a book smart or something like that that comes out or a parasite or something. It's like an anomaly that something like that gets made because it's a gamble, and they think, "Oh, well, if we if we do, you know, Yoda right. seventeen, people know that brand; they're gonna they're gonna engage with it." And it seems to me that a big part of the reason there's so much shit out there is because even these innovative outlets from from Silicon Valley are still afraid to try something new.
1: Yeah, that's look. That's a part of it, and we are we are living in a time where we are grossly over-indexed on sequels, prequels, remakes, different versions of the same Marvel movie. Um, And that is frustrating. At the same time, I I would argue that one of the reasons that there is so much shit on these streaming services is there's not—if you're Netflix— and you are are trying to just feed the beast of original content, especially because now all these other streaming services are taking back their content, so you need to have more and more and more original content, you are taking less care to create something that is really high quality. And so, you know, it's like, you know, when Richard Plepler was the head of HBO, he was in this incredibly privileged position where he could take time to really sort of you know um cater to the creator of a show he could be patient he could wait for something to work he could invest a lot of money in it if you're netflix and you're just throwing money at things and you're constantly cycling through things and you're launching two or three different shows on the same day and you're you know your own shows are competing for marketing it just becomes this thing where you're churn- you churn ha- you 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 will necessarily churn out a lot of shit content and frankly I have the same experience. I go into Netflix. I browse around for eight or nine minutes. and I'm like, there's nothing here I actually want to watch. And then if I actually do like to watch something, unless it's like a really big bet, like The Crown or Stranger Things, there are a lot of, movies where i'm like what did you put any energy into actually making this look good did you think about do you the production value i mean sometimes it feels like that you know there's gonna i'm gonna like see the light you know the lighting mechanisms or the boom mic is going to come down in the shot it's so bad do you think that they that that uh, that
0: those outlets like netflix and so on will change or is this just who
1: they are I think they will continue to, I mean, Netflix, Netflix is very specific because theirs is a scale play. They're basically trying to replace television, which is what they have to just keep churning out all that content. And so I think they will continue to make high bets and low bets. And they'll basically, you know, I I don't know the gambling metaphor, but they'll basically, they'll have a lot of low cost things that they'll sort of put out there into the market that aren't totally high quality, but maybe they'll catch on with enough people and they'll they'll become a sensation. or maybe they'll feed just enough people or give just enough people a reason to keep subscribing to Netflix. And then they'll have these really big things that you know, are their sort of message to the world that we value quality content. The Crown is an example of that. Uh, what they're doing with films like The Irishman, with Roma. That's an example of us saying, look look, we, we are willing to invest in quality content. The problem is is if you are in Hollywood and you're a content creator, you don't know unless you're Martin Scorsese that if you go to Netflix, you are going to get all that tender loving care. And I think that's why, you know, people will value something like an Apple TV or even an Amazon that might have a little bit more time to provide a little bit more of the, you know, the sort of um finesse that goes into making really great quality content.
0: All right. So uh we have a couple of minutes left. Um uh, just to bring it back to the beginning. Yeah. You think Bloomberg's gonna be the nominee? You think it's Buddha you think it's Warren?
1: See, here's what I know. If there's one I thing look, This I know. is just
0: a total close your eyes and throw the dart. So
1: Yeah, but see the this, the great thing is that any time I've tried to make a bet on how the future is gonna pan out, specifically in terms of political races. I have been woefully, woefully wrong. Okay, so who do you think is the least (laughs) likely, and then we'll pretend that that's the person who— Well, I don't think—you know, for instance, I don't think Andrew Yang is going to be the nominee. But I think he'll have an impact. He'll definitely have an impact, and it's important that he's there, and he might get a cabinet position. There are always—with every political race, there are the people who you can tell are actually running, and then there are the people who are running for cabinet positions. I think—I don't see Bernie Sanders being the nominee, I just don't. I, I think he had his time, and I think if you are in, if if that is where you fall on the political spectrum, why wouldn't you go for Elizabeth Warren? Joe Biden, you know, he's he's the most popular. He's been there before, but he has serious problems, and frankly, his it's not that he's old; it's that his age is showing. And I think that's I think that is going to be a very a very big issue for him, and it has been an issue on the debate stage. You know, Pete Buttigieg. I think he could be. And you, at the same time, maybe he's not—you know, he's, he's young. He doesn't have the Obama level of charisma, so maybe he can't sort of, close, you know, uh, cross the finish line with that. And then getting back to Bloomberg, I, I do not rule, rule Bloomberg out. And I didn't—you know, I will get pilloried for that by some people because I didn't rule Howard Schultz out either, and that was <clears throat> idiotic well, of Schultz, me.
0: Howard Schultz was a—, a- he was an asshole in the way that he went about it it was it was it was a, not a smart campaign it was not by a smart any campaign of the and it was it was a it was entitled and it was it was he came i think the difference between Schultz and Bloomberg is Schultz was like, "I'm running as an independent and I don't give a shit if it costs us trump i'm going to do it anyway whereas Bloomberg was like. I'm actually going to run as a Democrat, and yes. therefore I'm not going to
1: risk. This is, this is I think, part of the um, aversion that people have when, when billionaires get into the race, is they think that basically—and they're not wrong to think this— is that said billionaire has been sitting in a room of yes-men and thinks, oh my god, I ran a company so successfully, wouldn't I be a great president— And then everyone in the room is like, yeah, you know, you really would be, Howard. (laughs) You'd be great. And there aren't the people around them to tell them the way that this actually works, all of the the roadblocks that they're going to run up against, what the actual mood of the country is. The difference with Bloomberg is he has done the research. He did so much research that back when Howard Schultz was getting in, Bloomberg said, this isn't the right time. I think he's seen the way that the race has changed. I think he's seen the lack of enthusiasm around the Democratic Field And I think he thinks that there could be an opening. And so I don't know if, I don't know if Bloomberg is going to be the nominee, but I don't, I don't rule him out. And the one thing I know is that if you had asked people whether or not Obama was going to be the nominee in 2008 or whether or not president or president in 2008 or whether Trump was going to be president in 2016, everyone would have told you probably not.
0: Uh, likely not, I think was the, was the special, I mean, for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were, they were the long shot. So anyway, it will be
1: interesting to see. Uh, can you tell people where they can get your incredible newsletter? They can. It's at NBCNews.com backslash buyers market. And this is where you have to know that my last name is spelled B Y E R S market. Not B U Y. -Y It sounded really good when you could see it. But then, when you have to tell people about it and there's no visual aid, it becomes sort of harder.
0: <laughs> well, I always have to people, whenever I'm like on the phone with someone and I say Bilton and they're like, Hilton? And I'm like, no, <laughs> Bilton with a B. I'd stay at your hotel. <laughs> <laughs> the Bilton Hotel. This episode brought to you. Uh, Dylan, thank you so much. For this is a conversation. Thank you. Thanks to my guest today, Dylan Byers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find this on ApplePodcastRadio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week, Mother Hacker, Away, Figs, and Once Upon a Time in America. Please support them all the same way you support this podcast.